Part three of Infamous Day Marines at Pearl Harbor, seven December nineteen forty one by Robert James Cressman and J. Michael Winger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Eventually, in an almost predictable way, the Japanese planes formed up and flew off to the west, leaving the once neatly manicured mooring mast field smouldering. The Marines had barely had time to catch their collective breath when at ten o'clock almost as a capstone to the complete chaos wreaked by the initial japanese attack seven more planes arrived their markings however were of a more familiar variety red-centered blue and white stars the newcomers proved to be a group of dauntlesses from enterprise for the better part of an hour lieutenant wilmer e gallagher executive officer of scouting squadron six had circled fitfully over the pacific swells south of oahu waiting for the situation there to settle down at about nine forty five when he had seen that the skies seemed relatively clear of japanese planes gallagher decided rather than face friendly fire over pearl he would go to iwa instead they had barely stopped on the strip however when a marine ran out to gallagher's plane and yelled for god's sake get into the air or they'll strafe you too other enterprise pilots likewise saw ground crews frantically motioning for them to take off immediately instructed to take off and stay in the air until the air raid was over the enterprise pilots took off and headed for pearl harbor although all seven spds left iwa only three gallagher's his wingman ensign william p west and ensign cleo j dobson's would make it as far as ford island a tremendous volume of anti-aircraft fire over the harbor rose to meet what was thought to be yet another attack seeing the reception accorded gallagher west and dobson the other four pilots lieutenant j g hart d hilton and ensigns carl t fogg edwin j kroger and frederick t weber wheeled around and headed back to iwa landing around ten fifteen to find a far better reception that time around within a matter of minutes the marines began rearming and refueling hilton's kroger's and weber's spds the marines discovered that fogg's dauntless though had taken a hit and had hold a fuel tank and would require repairs although it is unlikely that even one of the iwa marines thought so at the time even as they serviced the enterprise sbds which sat on the landing mat the japanese raid on oahu was over vice admiral nagumo already feeling that he had pushed his luck far enough was eager to get as far away from the waters north of oahu as soon as possible at least for the time being the marines at iwa had nothing to fear not privy to the musings of nagumo and his staff however lieutenant colonel larkin could only wonder what the marines would do should the japanese return at ten twenty five he completed a glum assessment of the situation and forwarded it to admiral kimmel while casualties among the marines had been light two men had been killed and several wounded the japanese had destroyed all bombing fighting and transport planes on the ground iwa had no radio communications no power and only one small gas generator in commission he also informed the commander-in-chief pacific fleet that he would retain the four enterprise planes at iwa until further orders larkin also notified wheeler field control of the spds being held at his field 
at eleven hundred wheeler called and directed all available planes to rendezvous with the flight of b-17s over hickam lieutenant j g hilton and the two ensigns from bombing squadron six kroger and weber took off at eleven fifteen and the marines never heard from them again finding no army planes over hickam two flights of b-17s and douglas a-20s had only just departed the three navy pilots landed at ford island ensign fogg's spd represented the sole naval strike capability at ewa as the day ended they caught us flat-footed larkin unabashedly wrote major general ross e roll of the events of seven december over the next few months ewa would serve as the focal point for marine aviation activities on oahu as the service acquired replacement aircraft and began rebuilding to carry out the mission of standing ready to deploy with the fleet wherever it was required they're kicking the hell out of pearl harbor although the japanese accorded the battleships and air facilities priority as targets for destruction on the morning of seventh december nineteen forty one it was natural that the onslaught touched the marine barracks at pearl harbor navy yard as well colonel william e farthing army air forces commanding officer of hickam field thought that he was witnessing some very realistic maneuvers shortly before eight hundred hours that morning from his vantage point virtually next door to the navy yard farthing watched what proved to be six japanese dive bombers swooping down toward ford island he thought that mag twenty one's s b two u's or s b d's were out for an early morning practice hop i wonder what the marines are doing to the navy so early sunday over at the marine barracks the officer of the guard second lieutenant arnold d swartz after having inspected his sentries had retired to the officer of the day's room to await breakfast stepping out on to the lanai or patio at about seven fifty five to talk to the field music about morning colors he noticed several planes diving in the direction of the naval air station he thought initially that it seemed a bit early for practice bombing but then saw a flash and heard the resulting explosion that immediately dispelled any illusions he might have held that what he was seeing was merely an exercise seeing a plane with red balls on the wings roar by at low level convinced swartz that japanese planes were attacking over in the squad room of barracks b first lieutenant harry f noyes jr the range officer for battery e three-inch anti-aircraft group third defense battalion heard the sound of a loud explosion coming from the direction of the harbor at about seven fifty first assuming that blasting crews were busy there had been a lot of construction recently noyes cocked his ears the new sound seemed a bit different more higher-pitched and louder at that he sprang from his bed ran across the room and peered northward just in time to see a dirty column of water rising from the harbor from another explosion and a japanese plane pulling out of its dive the plane bearing red hinomaru rising sun insignia under its wings left no doubt as to its identity 
the explosions likewise awakened lieutenant colonel william j whaling and major james jerry monahan who while colonel gilder d jackson commanding officer of the marine barracks was at sea in indianapolis ca thirty five en route to johnston island for tests of higgins landing boats shared his quarters at pearl harbor shortly after o eight hundred whaling rolled over and asked jerry don't you think the admiral is a little bit inconsiderate of guests monahan then also awake replied i'll go down and see about it whaling meanwhile lingered in bed until more blasts rattled the quarter's windows thinking that he had not seen any five-inch guns emplaced close to the building and that something was wrong he got up and walked over to the window that faced the harbor looking out he saw smoke and turning remarked this thing is so real that i believe that's an oil tank burning right in front there both men then dressed and hurried across the parade ground where they encountered lieutenant colonel elmer e hall commanding officer of the second engineer battalion elmer whaling said amily this is a mighty fine show you are putting on i've never seen anything quite like it meanwhile schwartz ordered the field music to sound the call to arms then running into the officer's section of the mess hall schwartz informed the officer of the day first lieutenant cornelius c smith jr who had been enjoying a cup of coffee with marine gunner floyd mccorkle when the sharp blasts had rocked the building that the japanese were attacking like schwartz they ran out onto the lanai standing there speechless they watched the first enemy planes diving on ford island marines began to stumble eyes wide in disbelief from the barracks some were lurching on the run into pants and shirts a few wore only towels schwartz then ordered one of the platoon sergeants to roust out the men and get them under cover of the trees outside smith too then ran outside to the parade ground as he looked at the rising smoke in the japanese planes he doubted those who had derided the japs as cross-eyed second-rate pilots who couldn't hit the broadside of a barn door it was enough to turn his stomach they're kicking the hell out of pearl harbor he thought meanwhile unable to reach colonel harry b pickett the fourteenth naval district marine officer as well as colonel jackson and captain samuel r shaw commanding officer of company a by telephone schwartz sent runners to the officers respective quarters he then ordered a non-commissioned officer from the quartermaster department to dispense arms and ammunition while schwartz organized the men beneath the trees outside the barracks lieutenant noyes dressed and then drove across the parade ground to building two seventy seven arriving about eight o five at the same time like schwartz first lieutenant james s o'halloran the third defense battalion duties officer and commanding officer of battery f three inch anti-aircraft group wanted to get in touch with his senior officers after having had assembly sounded and signaling his men to take cover o'halloran ordered marine gunner frederick m steinhauser the assistant battalion communications officer to telephone all of the officers who resided outside the reservation and inform them of the attack 
in honolulu mustachioed major harold c roberts acting commanding officer of the third defense battalion since lieutenant colonel robert h pepper had accompanied colonel jackson to sea in indianapolis after taking steinhauser's call with word of the bombing of pearl jumped into his car along with his neighbor major kenneth w benner commanding officer of the three-inch anti-aircraft group and the headquarters and service battery of the third defense battalion as robert's car crept through the heavy traffic toward pearl the two officers could see japanese aircraft flying along the coast when they reached the water street fish market a large crowd of what seemed to be japanese residents cheering the japanese planes waving to them and trying to obstruct traffic to pearl harbor by pushing parked cars into the street blocked their way meanwhile as his acting battalion commander was battling his way through honolulu's congested streets o'halloran was organizing his marines as they poured out of the barracks into groups to break out small arms and machine guns from the various battalion storerooms after harry noyes drove up o'halloran told him to do what he could to get the three-inch guns and fire control equipment if available broken out and set up and then instructed other marines to get tractors and start hauling guns to the parade ground another detail of men hurried off to recover an anti-aircraft director that lay crated and ready for shipment to midway marines continued to stream out into the grounds having been ordered out of the barracks with their rifles and cartridge belts they doubled the sentry posts and received instructions to stand ready and armed to deploy in an emergency noise saw some marines who had not been assigned any task commencing fire on enemy planes which were considerably out of range at the main gate of the navy yard the marines fired at whatever planes came close enough sailors from the high-speed mine layer seacard dm twenty one en route to their ship later attested to seeing one japanese plane shot down by the guard's rifle fire tai sing lu who was to have photographed those guards at the new gate had left honolulu in a hurry when he heard the sound of explosions and gunfire and saw the rising columns of smoke he arrived at the naval reservation without his graflex and soon marveled at the cool bravery of the young fighting marines who stood their ground under fire blazing away at enemy planes with rifles while keeping traffic moving finally the more senior officers quartered outside the reservation began showing up when colonel pickett arrived lieutenant schwartz returned to the officer of the day's room and found that captain shaw had reached there also securing from his position as officer of the guard schwartz returned to his three-inch gun battery being set up near building two seventy seven ordering marines out of the building he managed to obtain a steel helmet and a pistol each for himself and lieutenant o'halloran captain samuel g taxis commanding officer of the third defense battalion's five-inch artillery group meanwhile witnessed terrific confusion ensuing from his men's effort to obtain ammunition steel helmets and other items of equipment meanwhile the comparatively few marines of lieutenant colonel's bert a bones first defense battalion most of which garrisoned wake johnston and palmyra made their presence felt 
urged on by lieutenant noyes one detail of men immediately reported to the battalion gunshed and storerooms and issued rifles and ammunition to all comers while another detachment worked feverishly assembling machine-guns navy yard workmen engine men lokana kipifu and uh, oliver bright fireman gerard williams and rigger ernest w birch appeared looking for some way to help the marines who soon put them to work distributing ammunition to the machine-gun crews soon the marines at the barracks added the staccato hammering of automatic weapons fire to the general din around them meanwhile other marines from the first defense battalion broke out firefighting equipment as shrapnel from exploding anti-aircraft shells began to strike the roof of the barracks and adjacent buildings at about eight twenty majors roberts and benner reached the marine barracks just in time to observe the beginning of the japanese second wave attacks against pearl roberts found that lieutenant o'halloran had gotten the third battalion ready for battle with seven fifty caliber and six thirty caliber machine guns set up and with ammunition belted under captain harry o smith jr commanding officer of battery h machine gun group third defense battalion the third's marine gunners had already claimed one japanese plane shot down lieutenant noyes was meanwhile in the process of deploying seven three-inch guns three on the west end of the parade ground and four on the east sergeant major leland h alexander of the headquarters and service battery of the third defense battalion suggested to lieutenant o'halloran that an armed convoy be organized to secure ammunition for the guns as none was available in the navy yard proper roberts gave alexander permission to put together the requisite trucks weapons and men lieutenant colonel bone had the same idea and accordingly dispatched a truck at eight thirty to the nearest ammunition dump near fort kamehameha bone ordered another group of men from the five-inch battery to the naval ammunition depot at luelue just in case he hoped that at least one truck would get through the maelstrom of traffic marines from the second engineer battalion made ammunition runs as well as provided men and motorcycles for messengers meanwhile roberts directed major benner to have the third battalion's guns operational before the ammunition trucks returned and to set the fuses for a thousand yards since the guns lacked the necessary height finding equipment the makeshift emplacements however presented less than ideal firing positions since the barracks and nearby yard buildings restricted the field of fire and many of the low-flying planes appeared on the horizon only for an instant necessity often being the mother of invention roberts devised an impromptu fire control system stationing a warning section of eight men equipped with field glasses and led by lieutenant schwartz in the center of the parade ground the spotters were to pass the word to a group of field musics who using their instruments were to sound appropriate warnings one blast meant planes approaching from the north two blasts from the east and so on taking precautions against fires in the temporary wooden barracks roberts ordered hoses run out and extinguishers placed in front of them along with shovels axes and buckets of sand the latter to deal with incendiary bombs hose reels and chemical carts placed near the center hydrant near the mess hall 
and all possible containers filled with water for both fighting fires and drinking in addition he ordered cooks and messmen to prepare coffee and fill every other container on hand with water and organized riflemen in groups of about sixteen to sit on the ground with an officer or non-commissioned officer in charge to direct their fire he also called for runners from all groups in the battalion and established his command post at the parade grounds south corner and ordered the almost a hundred and fifty civilians who had showed up looking for ways to help out to report to the machine-gun storeroom and fill ammunition belts and clean weapons among other actions he also instructed the battalion sergeant-major to be ready to safeguard important papers from the headquarters barracks prior to robert's arrival lieutenant j g william r franklin dental corps u s n the dental officer for the third defense battalion's headquarters and service battery and the only medical officer present had organized first aid and stretcher parties in the barracks as the other doctors arrived roberts directed them to set up dressing stations at each battalion headquarters and one at sick bay elsewhere marines vacated one one hundred man temporary barracks the non-commissioned officers club and the post exchange to ready them for casualties parties of marines also reported to the waterfront area to assist in collecting and transporting casualties from the ships in the harbor to the naval hospital by the time the marines had gotten their new fire precautions in place the japanese second wave attack was in full swing although their pilots selected targets exclusively from among the pacific fleet warships the marines at the barracks in the navy yard still were able to take the japanese planes most of which seemed to be coming in from the west and southwest under fire while marines were busily setting up the three-inch guns several civilian yard workmen grabbed up rifles and brought their fire to bear upon the enemy allowing schwartz's men to continue their work the japanese eventually put major roberts ingenious fire control methods the field musics to the test after hearing four hearty blasts from the bandsmen the fifty calibers began hammering out cones of tracer that caught two low-flying dive bombers as they pulled out of their runs over pearl prompting roberts fear that the ships would fire at them too and hit the barracks one valve slanted earthward near what appeared to be either the west end of the lower tank farm or the south end of the naval hospital reservation while the other emitting great quantities of smoke crashed west-southwest of the parade ground although the marines success against their tormentors must have seemed sweet indeed a skeptical captain taxis thought it more likely that the crews of the two valves bagged by the machine gunners had just run out of luck most of the firing in his opinion had been quite ineffectual mostly directed at enemy planes far beyond range of the weapons and merely fired into the air at no target at all gunners on board the fleet's warships were faring little better almost simultaneously with the dive-bombing attacks horizontal bombing attacks began major roberts noted that the eighteen bombers flew in two v's of nine planes each in column of v's and that they kept a good formation 
at least some of those planes appear to have bombed the battleship pennsylvania and the destroyers casson and downs in dry dock number one in the confusion however roberts probably saw two divisions of kate's from suikaku preparing for their attack runs on hickam field a single division of such planes from shokaku meanwhile attacked the navy yard and the naval air station well removed from the barracks marines assigned to the navy yard's fire department rendered invaluable assistance in leading critical firefighting efforts heading the department sergeant harold f abbott supervised the distribution of the various units and coordinated the flood of volunteers who stepped forward to help one of abbott's men private first-class marion m milbrant with his one thousand gallon pumper summoned to the naval hospital grounds found that one of kaga's kates struck by machine-gun fire from the ships moored in the repair basin had crashed near there the resulting fire fed by the crashed plane's gasoline threatened the facility but milbrant and his crew controlled the blaze other marine firefighters were hard at work alongside dry dock number one pennsylvania had not been the only ship not fully ready for war since she lay immobile at one end of the dry dock downs lay in the dock undergoing various items of work while Cassin had been having ordnance alterations at the yard and thus had none of her five inch thirty eights ready for firing both destroyers soon came in for some unwanted attention as bombs turned the two destroyers into cauldrons of flames and their crews abandoned ship two sailors from downs meanwhile sprinted over to the marine barracks gunner's mate first-class michael g odetas and gunner's mate second-class curtis p schultz after the order to abandon ship had been given both had on their own initiative gone to the marine barracks to assist in the distribution of arms and ammunition they soon returned however each gunner's mate with a browning automatic rifle in hand to do his part in fighting back utilizing three of the department's pumpers meanwhile the first firefighters from the yard who included corporal john gimson privates first class william m brashear william a hopper peter curtikes frank w ferret marvin d dalman and corporal milbrant among them soon arrived and began to play water on the burning ships at about nine fifteen four torpedo warheads on board downs cooked off and exploded the concussion tearing the hoses from the hands of the men fighting the blazes and sending fragments everywhere temporarily forcing all hands to retreat to the nearby road and sprawl there knocked flat several times by the explosions the marines and other firefighters which included men from casson and downs and civilian yard workmen remained on the job explosions continued to rack the two destroyers while subsequent partial flooding of the dock caused casson to pivot on her forefoot and heel over onto her sister ship working under the direction of lieutenant william r spear a fifty-seven-year-old retired naval officer called to the colors the firemen were understandably concerned that the oil fires burning in proximity to the two destroyers might drift aft in the partially flooded dry dock and breach the caisson 
unleashing a wall of water that would carry pennsylvania three of whose four propeller shafts had been pulled for overhaul down upon the burning destroyers preparing for that eventuality private first-class don o femmer in charge of the seven hundred and fifty gallon pumper stood ready should the conflagration spread to the northeast through the dock fortunately circumstances never required femmer and his men to defend the caisson from fire but the young private had more than his share of troubles when his pumper broke down at what could have been a critical moment undaunted femmer made temporary repairs and stood his ground at the caisson throughout the raid at the opposite end of the dry dock meanwhile private first-class omar e hill fared little better with his five hundred gallon pumper as if the fire-fighting labors were not arduous enough a ruptured circulating water line threatened to shut down his fire engine holding a rag on the broken line while his comrades raced away to obtain spare parts hill kept his pumper in the battle meanwhile firefighters on the west side of the dock succeeded in passing three hoses to men on pennsylvania's forecastle where they directed blasts of water ahead of the ship and down the starboard side to prevent the burning oil which resembled a seething cauldron from drifting aft a second five hundred gallon engine crew led by private first-class dolman battled the fires at the southwest end of the dry dock despite the suffocating oily black smoke billowing forth from caisson and downs eventually by ten thirty five the marines and other volunteers who included the indomitable tai sing lu had succeeded in quelling the fires on board caisson those on board downs were put out early that afternoon more work however lay in store for corporal milbrand and his crew between seven fifty five and o nine hundred three valves had attacked the destroyer shaw d d three seven three which shared y f d two with the little yard tug sotoyomo all three scored hits fires ultimately reached shaw's forward magazines and triggered an explosion that sent tendrils of smoke into the sky and severed the ship's bow several other volunteer units were already battling the blaze with hose carts and two three hundred and fifty gallon pumpers sent in from honolulu milbrand aided as well by the pan american airways fireboat normally stationed at pearl city ultimately succeeded in extinguishing the stricken destroyers fires in the meantime after having pounded the military installations on oahu for nearly two hours between nine forty and ten hundred the japanese planes made their way westward to return to the carrier decks from whence they had arisen with the respite offered by the enemy's departure no one knew for sure whether or not they would be back the marines at last found time to take stock of their situation fortunately the marine barracks lay some distance away from what had interested the japanese the most the ships in the harbor proper although some shell fragments literally rained at times the material loss sustained by the barracks was slight moreover it had been american gunfire from the ships in the harbor rather than bombs from japanese planes overhead that had inflicted the damage at one point that morning a three-inch anti-aircraft shell crashed through the roof of a storehouse the only damage sustained by the barracks during the entire attack 
considering the carnage at the fields on oahu and especially among the units of the pacific fleet only four men of the third defense battalion had been wounded sergeant samuel h cobb jr of the third defense battalion three-inch anti-aircraft group suffered head injuries serious enough to warrant his being transferred to the naval hospital for treatment while private first class jules b myron and private william j whitcomb of the machine gun group and sergeant leo hendricks the second of the headquarters and service battery suffered less serious injuries in addition two men sent with the trucks to find ammunition for the three-inch batteries suffered injuries when they fell off the vehicles in their subsequent reports the defense battalion and barracks officers declined to single out individuals noting no outstanding individual behavior during the raid only the steady discharge of duty expected of marines to be sure great confusion existed especially at first but the command quickly settled down to work and showed no more than the usual excitement and no trace of panic or even uneasiness if anything the marines tended to place themselves at risk unnecessarily as they went about their business coolly and in many cases in utter disregard of their own safety major roberts recommended that the entire third defense battalion be commended for their initiative coolness under fire and the alacrity with which they emplaced their guns commendations however were not the order of the day on seven december although the japanese had left the marines expected them to return and finish the job they had begun many japanese pilots including fushida wanted to do just that if another attack was to come there was much to do to prepare for it as the skies cleared of enemy planes the marines at the barracks secured their establishment and took steps to complete the work already begun on the defences at ten thirty the third defense battalion's corporal of the guard moved to the barracks and set the battalion's radio to the army information service frequency thus enabling them to pass flash messages to all groups the marines also distributed gas masks to all hands the morning and afternoon passed quickly the men losing track of time the initial confusion experienced during the opening moments of the raid had by that point given way to at least some semblance of order as officers and non-coms arrived from leave and began to sort out their commands at eleven o five the third defense battalion's battery g deployed to makeshift defense positions as an infantry reserve in some ditches dug for building foundations all of the messmen many of whom had taken an active hand in the defense of the barracks against the japanese attack returned to the three general mess halls and opened up an around-the-clock service to all comers including about six thousand meals to the civilian workmen of the navy yard a service discontinued only after the food supply at the regular established eating places could be replenished by eleven hundred at least some of the three-inch batteries were emplaced and ready to answer any future japanese raids at the north end of the parade ground the third defense battalion's battery d stood ready for action at eleven thirty five while another battery consisting of three guns and an anti-aircraft director the one originally earmarked for midway lay at the south end 
at twelve twenty major roberts organized his battalion's strength into six task groups task group number one was to double the navy yard guard force number two was to provide anti-aircraft defense and number three was to provide machine gun defense number four was to provide infantry reserve and firefighting crews number five was to coordinate transportation and number six was to provide ammunition and equipment as well as messing and billeting support by thirteen hundred meanwhile all the fires in dry dock number one had been extinguished permitting the marine and civilian firefighters to secure their hard-worked equipment although the two battered destroyers casson and downs appeared to be total losses those who had battled the blaze could take great satisfaction in knowing that they had not only spared pennsylvania from serious fire damage but had also played a major role in saving the dry dock as tai sing lu recounted later in his own brand of english the marines of the fire department of the navy yard are the heroes of the day of december seventh nineteen forty one that saved the casson and downs and u s s pennsylvania in dry dock number one later that afternoon battery d's four officers and sixty-eight enlisted men with four thirty caliber machine guns sent along with them for good measure moved from the barracks over to hickam field to provide the army installation some measure of anti-aircraft protection hickam also benefited from the provision of the second engineer battalion's service and equipment after the attack the battalion's dump truck and two bulldozers lumbered over to the stricken air base to assist in clearing what remained of the bombers that had been parked wingtip to wingtip and filling bomb craters around fifteen thirty a marine patrol approached tai sing lu a familiar figure about the navy yard and asked him to do them a favor they had had no lunch some had had no breakfast because of the events of the day going to the garage lou rode his bright red putt-putt over to the third defense battalion mess hall and related to his old friend technical sergeant joseph a newland the tale of the hungry marines newland and his messmen prepared ham and chicken sandwiches and lou made the rounds of all the posts he could reach in the afternoon and early evening hours of seven december the men received reports that their drinking water was poisoned and that various points on oahu were being bombed and or invaded in the absence of any real news such alarming reports especially when added to the already nervous state of the defenders only fueled the fear and paranoia prevalent among all ranks and rates in addition most of the men were exhausted after their exertions of the morning and afternoon dog-tired many would remain on duty for thirty-six hours without relief drawn unshaven faces and puffy eyes were common tense expectant and anxious marines and sailors at pearl spent a fitful night on the seventh it is little wonder that mistakes would be made that would have tragic consequences especially in the stygian darkness of that first blacked-out hawaiian night following the raid still some hours away from oahu the carrier enterprise and her air group had been flying searches and patrols throughout the day in a so far fruitless effort to locate the japanese carrier force south of oahu one of her pilots spotted what he thought was a japanese ship and enterprise launched a thirty-one plane strike at sixteen forty two nagumo's fleet however was homeward bound 
while enterprise recovered the torpedo planes and dive bombers after their fruitless search she directed the fighters to land at nas pearl harbor machine guns on board the battleship pennsylvania opened fire on the flight as it came for a landing though and soon the entire harbor exploded into a fury of gunfire as cones of tracers converged on the incoming wildcats three of the f four f's slanted earthward almost immediately a fourth crashed a short time later two managed to land at ford island the third defense battalion's journalist later recorded that six planes with running lights under four hundred feet altitude tried ford island landings and were machine-gunned it was a tragic footnote to what had been a terrible day indeed the marines at pearl harbor had been surprised by the attack that descended upon them but they rose to the occasion and fought back in the best tradition of the naval service while the enemy had attacked with tenacity and daring no less so was the response from the marines on board the battleships and cruisers at ewa mooring mastfield and at the marine barracks one can only think that admiral isaruko yamamoto's worst fears of america's terrible resolve and that he had awakened a sleeping giant would have been confirmed if he could have peered into the faces so deeply etched with grim determination of the marines who had survived the events of that december day in nineteen forty one pearl harbor remembered several of the many memoirs in the marine corps oral history collection are by marines who were serving at pearl harbor on seven december nineteen forty one and personally witnessed the japanese attack two such memoirs one by lieutenant general alan shapley and a second by brigadier general samuel r shaw vividly describe the events of that day as they remembered it general shapley a major in december nineteen forty one had been relieved as commander of arizona's marine detachment on the sixth he recalled i was just finishing my breakfast and i was just about ready to go to my room and get in my baseball uniform to play the enterprise for the baseball championship of the united states fleet when i heard this terrible bang and crash i thought it was a motor sailor that they had dropped on the fantail and i ran up there to see what it was all about when i got up on deck there the sailors were aligned on the railing there looking towards pearl harbor and i heard two or three of them say this is the best damned drill the army air corps ever put on then we saw a destroyer being blown up in the dry dock across the way the first thing i knew was when the fantail which was wood was being splintered when we were being strafed by machine guns and then there was a little bit of confusion and i can remember this because they passed the word on ship that all unengaged personnel get below the third deck you see in a battleship the third deck is the armored deck and so realizing what was going on this attack and being strafed the unengaged personnel were ordered below the third deck that started some people going down the ladders then right after that the pennsylvania which was the flagship of the whole fleet put up these signals go to general quarters so that meant that the people were going the other way too lieutenant carlton e simonson did quite a job of turning some of the sailors around and we went up in the director on the way up the mainmast tripod lieutenant simonson was killed 
he caught a burst through the heart and almost knocked me off the tripod because i was behind him on the ladder and i boosted him up in the searchlight platform and went in to my director and of course when i got out there there were only seven or eight men there and i thought we were all going to get cooked to death because i couldn't see anything but fire below after a while i stayed there and watched this whole attack because i had a grandstand seat for that and then it got pretty hot anyway the wind was blowing from the stern to the stem and i sent the men down and got those men off then i apparently got knocked off or blown off i was pretty close to shore there was a dredging pipeline that ran between the ship and ford island and i guess that i was only about twenty-five yards from the pipeline and ten yards from ford island and managed to get ashore i wasn't so much covered with oil i didn't have any clothes on the burning fuel oil burnt all my clothes off i walked up to the airfield which wasn't very bright of me because this was still being attacked at first i wanted to get a machine gun in the administration building but i couldn't do that then i was given a boat cloak from one of my men it was quite a sight to see four hundred or five hundred men walking around all burnt just like charred steak you could just see their eyes and their mouths it was terrible later i went over to the island and went to the marine barracks and got some clothes at the marine barracks captain samuel r shaw who commanded one of the two barracks companies vividly remembered that sunday morning as well the boat guards were in place and the music was out there and the old and new officer of the day and we had a music and a hell of a fine sergeant bugler who had been in shanghai he would stand beside the officers of the day and there came the airplanes and he looked up and said captain those are japanese warplanes and one of the two of them said my god they are sound the call to arms so the bugler started sounding the call to arms before the first bomb hit of course they had already started taking out the machine guns they didn't wait for the key in the od's office they just broke the door down and hauled out the machine guns put them in position everybody that wasn't involved in that drill grabbed their rifles and ran out in the parade ground and started firing at the airplanes they must have had several hundred men out there with rifles and every japanese plane that was recovered there or pieces of it had lots of thirty caliber holes somebody was hitting them machine guns or rifles then i remembered here we had all these guys on the post who had not been relieved and they had been posted at four o'clock and some nine o'clock nine thirty they not only had not been relieved but had no chow and no water so i got hold of the mess sergeant and told him to organize to go round to the posts they had a depot at the beginning it was a supply depot i told him to send a party over there and draw a lot of canteens and make sandwiches and we'd send water and sandwiches around to the guys on posts until we found out some way to relieve all these guys and get people back then he told me that it was fine except that he didn't have nearly enough messmen they were all out in the parade ground shooting i think the second phase of planes came in at that time and we had a hell of an uproar end of part three end of infamous day marines at pearl harbor seven december nineteen forty one by robert j cressman and j michael winger